You are listening to the EnormoCast. Hey folks, the word Enormo has long been used by EnormoCast listeners to get great coffee from Defiant Bean and now Bonfire at Coffee.com. But now the magic word is going to make you not only more alert, but stronger and therefore more attractive. How does this work? Is simply screaming it at the crux enough? Perhaps. But more indirectly, but effectively, you can now use Enormo to get a discount on pure climbing holds. Yes, it's time to build that woody and start training. Go to pureholds.com, P-U-R-H-O-L-D-S.com, and enter Enormo at checkout for 10% off your purchase. And while you're there, check out the Enormo hold. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing it at? You, you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Enormo dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll see. You really should... Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And Defiant Bean is now Bonfire Coffee. How did that happen? Don't worry about it. Jeff is still roasting delicious coffee that will delight your taste buds and will make you feel, smell, and seem more sophisticated. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Normo at checkout for a discount. And now back to the show. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Calise. It is Wednesday, July 16th, about 9.08 Mountain Standard Time. Not about. That's exactly what time it is, actually. You don't say about and then say 9.08. It's about 9 o'clock, all right? Anyway, this is episode 61. This is your host, Chris Calise. Or I already say that. I don't know. I can't remember now. Okay, I'm just going to keep recording. Um, I'm sitting in the mobile studio. It is parked in my driveway. You might hear little Mexican kids playing around in the background. Makes a nice, comfortable sound booth, and the vibe in here is always good. So uh, I thought I'd come out and record the intro out here. I sat down on episode 61. This is going to be an interview with Don McGrath, who wrote a book called The Vertical Mind. And Don met me out in Rifle, Colorado. I rolled the mobile studio out there. We sat on the side of the road, actually got a little out of the campground because people were reveling a little too much and it was getting too much on the recording. So we drove up the canyon a little ways and just parked next to the creek. You'll hear the creek in the background. Sounds like wind or static, but that's the creek. That's what it sounds like in Rifle. If you've never been to that corner of the Bromuda Triangle, that's what it sounds like there. It's lovely. Lovely way to go to sleep, listening to the rushing creek. Anyhow, we get down and dirty about his book, The Vertical Mind. So we'll get into that in just a minute. Um, I just rolled back from Lander, Wyoming, and I went up there and had yet another magical time with a couple friends from Carbondale. Went up and was treated so nicely by Jill Hunter and uh, the Lander Bar and everyone else in Lander. No incidents with the mobile studio, actually. It ran like a champ, other than the fact that I ran out of gas up at Sinks. Yeah, we rolled through town, and the gas gauge doesn't work that great, and so I just kept on kept on going, pulled a Kramer, 
even though it seemed like I was probably getting pretty low, just rolled right through lander and went up to sinks and got up there and it was too bloody hot to go climbing. So we thought we'd go swimming. And then I went to continue up the hill in the mobile studio and it ran out of gas. Luckily I had, uh, Chris Hampton's phone number, O-Dub, formerly O-Dub. He's looking for a new name, I think. Anyway, he was able to come up and uh, bring me some gasoline, which was awesome. And um, I ended up meeting Becca Skinner, who showed up in Chris's car and uh, later came on the uh, Normacast. So we'll be hearing from Becca in a couple months. Got a lot of really good stuff up there that will be coming out in the next few months. And, uh, yeah, we'll be hearing more and more about Lander and uh, that great town and the great climbing fest up there. Okay, I got nothing really uh, happening now for a little while. Going to go to the new in the fall. I'm going to go to uh, the trade show here in a little bit, get some more stuff, hopefully, and uh, that's about it. Yeah, and I'd like to uh, get around to thanking the folks who have donated. I don't really do that uh, on air very often, and, um, you know, while I was in Lander, a few people kicked down. Um, One particularly generous donation came in, and the whole thing ended up paying for most of the gas and everything on the trip. So, yeah, so that's cool, you know. So if you, uh, you know, you don't want any coffee or you don't need T-shirts or climbing holds or cams or ropes or any of that other bullshit, but you love the show, you got to have the show. If you like supporting it, just go over to normacast.com and click on the donate button. Buy me a beer. Give me a few cents per episode. Whatever you want to do. It's awesome. I appreciate it. And uh, definitely helps make this thing feel worthwhile. Okay, while you're over there at normacast.com, if you don't want to kick down any cash or you're supporting the sponsors anyway or doing other things to help the Normacast, you can uh, click over to the Help Out tab. There's a bunch of things you can do, just um, like writing a review at iTunes, that sort of stuff. Very easy. It just takes a little bit of time. And uh, also remember that if you want a sticker to represent then send me an address and I'll get a sticker to you probably, most likely. Um, sometimes that doesn't happen, but most of the time it does. So, And we have new stickers, not just the one with the Cast Mountain on it, but uh, the one that says Continue with Style. So if you already have some stickers and don't have that one, hit me up. Okay, that's it. Let's get to an interview, a very in-depth interview about the vertical mind with author Don McGrath and uh, a lot of interesting stuff here about how your brain can sometimes help and sometimes hinder you as a climber in this world. And we know that. We know the brain plays tricks on us and the brain doesn't always want to do what we want it to do, like calm the fuck down when things are getting a little hairy. All that's here. This one's for the Brainiacs, episode 61. Conversation with author Don McGrath.
I'm sitting in the uh, the mobile studio in Rifle, Colorado. Um, I know I'm, I'm like 100% for mentioning Rifle in my episodes, so I'm just going to keep that going. I'm sitting on the side of the road in Rifle with Don McGrath, the author of Vertical Mind, as well as 50 Athletes Over 50, two books that he's written. And Don got in touch with me about, I'm talking about this book, uh, how long ago did this come out, Vertical Mind? came out Mind? in February. Okay. So, relatively new, and um, I thought, wow, that'd be cool to talk to you about. Uh, talk to an author about his book specifically, although we've had other authors on podcasts. So, welcome to the mobile studio. Thanks for having me. It's good. it's really great. So, Don, you're from Colorado Springs. Yeah, from Colorado Springs, originally from upstate New York. So, I kind of cut my teeth in the Adirondacks and the Gunks before moving out to Colorado. All right. Well, you know, I've gotten a couple uh, a couple emails about having an, some Adirondack climbers on. So, check. Yes, yes, all right, you've done it. You've satisfied that. Uh, it's an esoteric little climbing community and uh, very proud of what they're doing up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just really, really a nice place. Nice. And how, how long ago did you move to Colorado? In 2001. Okay, not long ago. Not long ago. So you have a good legacy back there in the East. Pretty good legacy. Never could imagine moving back, actually. Well, yeah, yeah we talked about earlier tonight. How? Yeah, I love my family. I love my friends back there. But the climbing down here is so much better. Ooh, ouch. You just it. <laughs> I'm gonna have to edit that out. But um, yeah, so so before we get into this book, you know, I, I kind of wanted to establish sort of what kind of climber you are because I mean, most people will never have heard the name Don McGrath before, and they'll pick up this book. And you do talk a lot about your own climbing in there and using your own experiences as as examples. But how long ago did you start climbing? So I started climbing in 1991. I was around 30 years old when I started, so kind of late to climbing. Uh-huh. I was a competitive runner in high school and college and kind of found climbing kind of late. Um, climbing, climbing, I enjoy much more than much more than running, obviously. Um, but it kind of, kind of came late to it. So what are you talking about in terms of late? Well, I was 30 years old or so oh, okay. when, I, when I found climbing. Right, and, uh, and you're 51 now? 51, yeah. Okay. So you came to climbing pretty late. 30 years old isn't that late. But I guess, I mean, in terms of athletics, like athletic pursuits we generally think of finding them in our 20s to sort of maximize yeah i mean that's often when people find find um kind of athletics they usually start you know in in high school and college right and then carry Mm -hmm. carry on for some time in fact what i found in my 50 athletes over 50 there's there are some people that don't discover any kind of sport until their 30s Mm -hmm. and um and they can go on to enjoy sports for a long long time well i I, i'm going to relate this to your book as well later but i've always been sort of fascinated i wasn't much of an athlete in high school um you know actually when i say wasn't much of one i wasn't one at all in terms of organized sports and since then i've noticed you know like it's really difficult for a lot of people to find an athletic pursuit that they they can continue in any serious way after either high school or if they're the few people that go on to play anything in college i mean it it seems to kind of end Right. You know, and climbing because it has these intrinsic motivations, which is something you talk about in your book. It it tends to seem like it's something that people can carry on. Like very few people, girls play volleyball right. much after high school. You know, and, and I when I was a high school teacher, like the you know the girls who played volleyball, like it was a huge part of their identity and then it just ends and the guys that play basketball a lot of them it just ends except for the pickup game so climbing seems a little bit different in some ways in that it's a pursuit that i think 
if you decide to keep doing it as, as an adult, it can become this lifetime thing that you yeah. Well, I think a lot do. of those sports require a certain amount of infrastructure, like right. like basketball. Right, you've got to have a court. You've got to have somebody organizes the teams. You've got to sure. have some kind of a coach. You've got to have that kind of thing. And climbing is much more freeform. Right. Right. It's kind of there to be accessed any any day, any time. And you can do it without a team of people. Right. right. You can do it with one or two people. Right. Or even without, like, a competitive right. kind of thing yeah. at all. Yeah. You don't need, necessarily need a competitor. Right. Although it has its its competition in it. So, so you start climbing when you're 30, living in the East Coast in the early 90s, and pre-gyms to a certain extent, although there might They're have been... They were just yeah. starting, you know. Right. That, in fact, one, that's one of the things that probably started me climbing. I happened to be out in Yosemite for a week mm-hmm. and had done a bunch of hiking, kind of got tired of hiking around, so I went to this climbing class, and they kind of exposed us to, uh, exposed me to a little bit of climbing. That summer, they also opened a gym up in Glens Falls, which is about 40 minutes from my house. Okay. So I went there for the first time, and I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. And then I just started climbing at the gym. Oh, right on. So the gyms were sort of... Yeah, just starting. Uh Just starting Uh early 90s. And um, and it's also a little bit uh, sort of, especially on the East Coast, uh, pre-sport climbing, not a lot of bolting going on. So you were instantly in the gym and also probably tried climbing from the get-go. Right. So a lot of the people who I met at the gym who had been experienced climbers were all tried climbers. Mm-hmm. So they really taught me how to climb. Sure. And so within a year or so, I transitioned to climbing outside up in the Adirondacks, down in the gunks, and really learned how to trad climb. Okay. And then over time, you know, whenever my wife and I would go away on vacation, we would sport climb just because we would get so saturated by trad climbing. Right. And now since we move out here to Colorado, since there's so much sport climbing, and my wife doesn't like to get off the ground very much, sure. you know, on multi-pitch stuff. So sure. we've just adopted sport climbing as our kind of preferred thing. Right. And, you know, with a lot of these books about performance, as soon as you start talking about climbing performance, I always start to think about sport climbing. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the, one of the reasons we call it sport climbing is because you approach it like a sport or a, a, a more athletically in a lot of ways. And performance starts to become, you know... This game that you play, I think, more so than than maybe with with going in, at least climbing big routes or track climbing. But at the same time, you know, one of the big things you talk about in Vertical Mind is fear, dealing with fear. And generally, I think a lot of people associate that with track climbing. So, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, this book, for me, started to really talk to a bunch of different things in in terms of climbing. So... Let's get into this, though. So the, the book is called Vertical Mind, and you were about to tell me when I made you stop because I wanted to get it on tape. Is well, How did you come up with this idea for writing a book? I mean, you're not a professional author per se. You have another life and another thing that you do for a living. Right. So what's the what was the story behind coming up with this book? Well, I'll kind of dial back to the first book I okay. wrote. I actually wrote 50 Athletes Over 50. Because my wife uh, hit around age 50, and she had a bit of a midlife crisis mm-hmm. and decided to go quit her job and go to culinary school. And so she moved out of the house, went to culinary school for six, six months, and it got me thinking, you know, kind of what's, what's my next thing? You know, what, what am, what am I going to do when I'm not being an engineering manager? And I decided one of the things I wanted to know is how, how I can stay athletic you know, longer and longer as I as I was approaching 50. Right. And so that's why I did the 50 Athletes Over 50, where I interviewed 50 Athletes Over 50. Um, and then I discovered during that process I love to write. 
So I began writing. I started writing a blog called MasterRockClimber.com, where I write about training for climbing and okay. my own experiences. I interview other people. Um, and it was in that that, you know, when you write about training for climbing, you get pretty introspective about your own training. And so I started thinking about my own performance and my own training. And one thing I found is that some of the things that were holding me back were purely mental. I was finding, in fact, I was, I was here at Rifle, and I was finding as I would get close to sending my projects, I would, I would get so much anxiety about sending them that I would avoid them. You know, I'd, I'd say, oh, I don't feel good today, or oh, it might rain, it's a little humid. And I was really struggling with the anxiety of, of sending my route versus not. Right. And so it started me researching that. I went out and pretty much read every book about mental training, about psychology related to sports. Uh-huh. And I started experimenting with some things, uh, and some things started actually helping me. And it was really interesting that about that same time I met Jeff Ellison, who's the co-author of Vertical Mind. He's a psychology professor from Adams State University. He was a friend of a friend at the time. Of course, he's a friend now. And uh, we climbed together uh, one day here at Rifle. Uh-huh. And we were sitting around drinking his margaritas, and Jeff makes some killer margaritas, you know, so we, we probably drank too many of them. But um, I was explaining to him what I was finding, you know, with some of the things I was experimenting with, and he explained to me that, you know, his research focuses on fear of failure. And we had a lot of fun talking about the kind of things I was experiencing, the performance anxiety that I was having, and some of the things that I was finding success with. And so it was that night, I think, probably about three or four days later, we decided to collaborate and write a book. We didn't know it was going to be called Vertical Mind, but we decided to bring our, our kind of knowledge together and, and put something out there. We focus so much on the physical, especially with sport climbing again. You know, I need to be stronger, I need to be stronger, I need to be stronger. And then when I read the introduction of this book, some of the examples you used of like where we clearly have a mental block and it hits us in the face and yet our only real solution a lot of times is to come down and say, oh, I got to get stronger still. Well, you, you know, know, the thing is that that's one thing I found is, you know, once once I started doing research for this book, I went out and I interviewed a number of elite climbers and I would I asked them how important is the mental part of your game. And almost across the board, it was like 90 plus percent part of their game was their their mental preparation. Their, but then when I asked them, how do you train for it, none of them can tell me. Right. So they just when, hope it. They, it yeah, they were like, well, you know, I, I think positively or, right. oh, I, I, I use visualization. Well, how do you yeah. do that? Well, you know, I, so that's one thing that Jeff and I set out to do right. was frame it with the science mm-hmm. and then provide a, a training framework that here's, you know, step A, B, C, D based upon the science. So sure. that's what we try to do. Sure. And that, that also was cool. It's like, uh, you know, I read um, and reviewed years ago uh, for Rock and Ice, uh, Rock Warrior's Way. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot out of that book. And I, I remember taking, you know, a, a bunch of stuff away. And then the, one of the big contrasts I see in this book is that you've got all this science in here. You know, and and a lot of a lot of what the Rock Warriors way is about is kind of a little I don't want to say softer, but, you know, sort of these attitude shifts and and things like that. And then all of a sudden I'm hit with like true science about how neurons work and how they fire and how your brain deals with this and how it deals with that. I just thought like, well, I'm going to go back and read actually the Rock Warriors way now because I thought, well, a lot of those techniques in there are sort of explained in this book, right? In in a from the other direction, like a scientific way, as opposed to almost you know the Rock Warriors way is almost has a spirituality to it, a little bit, 
And and this is coming from kind of like a little bit more hard science direction. Yeah, I, I really like Arno's books, and I know Arno pretty well myself. Mm-hmm. And he really got us thinking about it. Right. He really brought that. I think that's that was the first real book that made climbers start thinking about the the inner game. Sure. Right? So I really sure. respect all the things that he's done. Jeff and I, you know, Jeff before he became a psychology professor was an engineer. Okay. And I'm I'm an engineer. Have been for twenty five years, and so. We find that we learn if we know the science, if we know the why. You know, right. why does this work? Right. And then once I know the why, it's much easier for me to do the how. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we really try to take a scientific approach. All right. Well, let's get into kind of uh, some of the basic building blocks of, of what you guys talk about in here. And, I mean, you can maybe once I ask this question back up a little bit further, but one of the words that keeps popping up all over this book is this idea of scripts. Okay, and um, if you take a minute, because you'll do it better than I do, but uh, sort of tell me about what these scripts are and how our brain uses those to kind of uh, deal with the world. Sure. When, when, when you think about all the things that you do, almost everything we do is nearly automatic. Mm-hmm. When you think about brushing your teeth, you don't think, oh, I have to open the door. Oh, there's the white tube. Now I've got to turn counterclockwise five turns to get the cap off, you know? These things happen automatic. I mean, how many times have you left your house, got in your car, went to drive somewhere, and found yourself driving to work when you really meant to go someplace else? Sure. You know, so much of what we do is automatic. Right. And it, it has to be that way. I mean, we only have so much space in our working memory to be able to do things that are really complex that a lot of what we do is driven by scripts or very automatic behaviors. Mm-hmm. So scripts are how we interact with the environment, okay? And a lot of it is just driven by automatic things, driven by, you know, you're in a situation, you observe the situation, and you react in a certain way, and right. it's really driven by scripts. So how does that relate that to climbing? Like, give me an example of of a climbing script that we might use. Okay, so a climbing script, let's say I'm on a sport route, right? And I cl- I, I've never been on the route before. I climb up, I clip the first bolt. Okay, I look, I figure out where I'm going. Okay, I know mm-hmm. what to do. I see what to do. On and on and on. I get to a spot where I've, I have no idea what to do. Right. Right. I look up. I have no idea. I mean, I might see a little smudge of holes. I, now, I could have a few different responses, right? I could say, Take right. That could be a script. Right. Or I could say, not verbally, but I can say in my head, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to feel that thing that looks like a smudge. Right. And who knows? Maybe it'll be good. And if it is, I'll use it. Or I might say, Well, I'm just going to go for that smudge, put my foot up, and go. Right. right. So those are three different scripts that one could have. And which one of you of those do you think is the most, the least productive script? Uh, the take. The take. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I can have unproductive scripts and I can have more productive scripts and all of us have these and where some of those were more likely to have more often than others. I was just thinking about when you said those three things, like I've got three different climbers I know in my brain mm-hmm. and, exactly. and you know, the guy who I have climbing friends who always go for it. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, I, I can be the guy that says take when it gets hard on the first go. If I've, Because if I've already decided that it's too hard for me to onsite it anyway, then I'm just working it, you right, know? Right, So I, that's funny because in, in, with the scripts, as we get into this idea, is that what sometimes what you're trying to do then is trying to retrain 
what I, w- I wrote this down, the maladaptive script. Right. It's a maladaptive. I mean, clearly, immediately saying take when you don't know what to do is a maladaptive script, right? right. That's going to hold you back. I right. Mean, if that is your first response every single time you don't know what to do, mm-hmm. that's a maladaptive script. Right. And so a lot of what you guys started talking about in this book is how to retrain us ourselves to get off of these scripts because they're like they're like ruts or they're like you know this preconceived notion when we leave the ground it's all and and today i was climbing and rifle and you know and the word script obviously makes me think of writing out like a a play or like Mm -hmm. a, a television show and i started to just for the first time i started to listen to people writing their scripts before they left the ground and i Maybe I'm like stretching the use of this word, but you know, oh, I I haven't been climbing all year. You know, I don't know if this thing's gonna go that well, or I'm, you know, or I'm feeling really strong right now. Like I'm I'm totally stoked. I got I'm ready to go. You know, and each one of those things like just popped me into my brain. It's like you've already kind of like started to to create the reaction that you're gonna have to this route. You know, and so. It's not exactly like positive thinking. People always like, yeah, use positive thinking or whatever, and it's a little bit trite. Like, okay, that's great. Can you can you give me something a little bit more specific? But so how how do you go about? I mean, retraining these scripts. Yeah. So there there is a formula that we paint. It's based upon mm-hmm. the psychological pr- principle. Um, it was it was uh, come up with a scientist by the name of Ellis. It's called Ellis's ABCs, and. Um, so in in a, in a in a in a in a script you have the A part which is the activating event. Right. Okay. I, I reach a spot where I don't know what to do on the climb. Okay. Right. The B is an underlying belief. My underlying belief, if I say take, might be, gosh, I don't want to do. I'm probably going to fall anyways. I may just get it out of the way. Right. Right. Oh, the, I've C, done that. the C is the consequence <laughs> where it's you're hanging on the rope going, gosh, I should have tried something right here. Right. I, I, you know, I'm a loser. I'm sitting here. Actually, I could Because once you do it, you're probably, gosh, if I'd only known that hole was there. Right. Right. So they call it Ellis's ABCs. But really, Ellis, I think, was just a little bit lazy because there's a D and an E part of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, And that's actually this, the part where you change the scripts. Okay. So the D part is to debunk the belief. Okay, so you need to ask yourself and start your 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 mindset shifting toward, okay, have I ever gone for it? Have I ever gone up and felt that smudge and it was a good hold? Probably. Right. Right. And so once you start debunking the belief that, gosh, I don't know what to do. I'm probably going to fall. I should probably just hang anyways. You can start believing that there are options besides that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then once you debunk that, you start practicing and replace the old ineffective behaviors with the new behaviors okay so the one thing that's very very important and kind of comes across through the throughout the book is the importance of drills to putting yourself in a situation where you want to take a behavior that you don't currently have that may be maladaptive and replace it with a more favorable behavior Mm -hmm. so let's say that situation where you get to a spot on a route you don't know what to do and you take automatically well, you want to put yourself over and over again in a situation where you do go for it. Okay. Right? In, in, a, in a safe environment mm-hmm. where you're not going to get hurt, right? Right. But that you start training your mind to go and do that. And once you do that enough times, you will paint over the old behavior. Right. And I think that one thing about reading a book like this is that, you know, you realize that kind of what we do naturally or how we progress through climbing, it, it 
tends to kind of fit with some of these things. I mean, obviously, we we most of us start at one place and we eventually get better, mm-hmm. and we end up arrive at some other place where well where we're better. And if you looked back, you're like, oh yeah, be, you know, by doing a lot of five nine over and over and over again, I was you know I was creating this script to move exactly. me to five ten. But at the same time, I think if you're if you're going to be conscious of it, and especially when you when we run into a roadblock, which eventually all of us do if we want to perform in climbing, you know, you can call them a plateau or you can call them whatever. You know, it's nice to to, to have these things like put into into words and into ideas that you can actually pursue. Versus, I made a joke recently in something that I wrote that you know we just used to just. To hope we got better somehow, like magically, right, you know, right. without trying. And it will happen. I mean, if you yeah, keep it a pursuit, if you keep it running or cycling or skating or climbing, I mean, you you will progress if you keep at it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that Jeff and I try to do in the book is create a training framework. And right. it kind of comes out at the end of the book. And it kind of, through the book, we build the scientific principles. But in the end, we have this framework we call think, play, send. And the think part is about thinking what are the areas where you have some maladaptive behaviors? Right. Right. Analyzing your climbing and have, having and listening to other people to help you be very conscious about where you should focus your efforts. And then the play part is creating an environment where, in a safe environment, you do drills where you can start building up a repertoire of successful um, executions of that, sure. right? And kind of make those successful neural connections. And then send is where you actually do it in the moment of executing on a climb. Okay. So if you were, let me try to think of a couple examples and you can kind of tell me if I'm, if I'm on the right track. So let's say you're a big time red point climber and that's your thing. Okay. You, you very seldom even try, like I was just saying earlier, like the first time up, you're not even really going to try that hard. You're going to, you want to get it worked out. One day you decide you want to be a better onsite climber. Even if it was, like, relatively easy for you, would it be a beneficial thing to go back and be on-siding routes well within your grade? It would be beneficial, to... but it, it, there, there comes a point where it's not beneficial, right? right? Let's, say, let's say I climb 512, right? Let's say, okay. I, I, let's say I, you know, red point 513, I can do 12s pretty quickly, and I, I might be able to on-side 11s. But I don't do it that often, so okay. I'm, usually, I'm usually not comfortable on-siding. That's kind of the scenario you're talking about, right? Sure. If I went down and started doing just lots of nine five nines and five tens, I'm probably not going to benefit very much, because I'm really not hitting. And we talk about there, there's actually a a performance arousal relationship, mm-hmm. and in that case where you're climbing five nine and five ten, you're really not engaging enough of your physical and mental abilities to really really learn that much. Right. So, but I think if you went back and started building up your repertoire of 511s, you know, on sites, right. then you would start really starting to feel comfortable. You'd start feel, uh, creating those success scripts, right, where you're comfortable in the moment. Now, you might fall, but if you put yourself in that situation over and over and over again, eventually you'll fall less and less and less because there'll be less anxiety when you're right. on, when you're doing that on sighting and you'll just become better at it. And so I think, you know, the word anxiety plays a big par- part in, in all this. You you have a bunch of stuff in here about the fear of falling, mm-hmm. which is is something, you know, I asked, actually asked somebody today because uh, we had sort of started talking about this book because they asked me what I was reading. And 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 uh, and I asked them, are you are you afraid of falling still? You know, 
And they said, no, not really. It's not really that big a deal for me. But then you move on to this chapter on the fear of failure. And they said, yeah, that that's more sort of my problem, this anxiety about about failing. But going back, I think, with a lot of climbers who are like not necessarily beginner, but beginner to intermediate level, the the falling off is still that's a, a big deal, and a I think big deal. Yeah, and it's right? a big and, and there's a very clear distinction, right? You and I, how many thousands of falls have we taken? Right? I don't know. I I, I once tried to calculate, you know, given how I, I climb each week, it, right. it's thousands, right? And so, I have very successful. Good scripts around falling, right? Yes. And and I kind of evaluate a fall very quickly, and I know when a fall is safe and unsafe. Now, someone I still who's don't just, like to do it. <laughs> don't. I still you, have not this your problem. preferred thing, but right, you know right, when right. it happens, it's right, usually right, really right. mellow. You know the outcome yeah. is is you know I've had one really I, bad fall in my life. Right. You know, I took this really fall. strange giant whipper today, so yeah. <laughs> that was unexpected. But anyway, go but ahead. Somebody who's new, right? They haven't created those scripts, right? right. Their, their scripts are, oh my god, fall? Are you kidding me? Right. Right. So I think for relatively newer climbers, the fear of falling is is a much bigger factor mm-hmm. for really experienced climbers. It's really that fear of failure, which becomes a, a battle for us. Certainly. Yeah. And in, in, you know, in terms of of convincing me that the mind is controlling so much of what I tend to dismiss in terms of of physical you know i'm just not strong enough or or you know one example that really struck true to me is the the idea of when you are scared of falling and you're trying to get the rope clipped and it feels super desperate and literally the moment you hear that gate snap closed and the ropes in there it's like those holds suddenly get giant and, and you, you just find the stance your right and you and it's you're, all of a sudden, there's all these feet. Hold, yeah, no, problem, no problem, no problem. And it's this whole mental thing. And then the other thing is, this morning I was driving here, and I'm thinking about the route that I'm working on here. You know, it's the eighth day. It's this super long, kind of tratty route with these, like, sport runouts. You know, in the real world, they wouldn't be so bad. But in a sport climbing area, you're not supposed to have to climb that far above your bolt on hard climbing. But anyway, and I, I actually, my heart rate went up. My hands were sweating just a, just enough, like this little tingle of sweat in this of thinking about making a clip on that route, like sitting in the car driving. My brain was and I could actually kind of feel like I sort of felt a little weakness, mm-hmm. like it, it kind of shut me down. You know what? I mean, what is that response? Like, why am I? I mean, from a sort of scientific or biological standpoint, like why? Has my why have I evolved to have the, this response? Well, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of literature out there that that has um, a lot of anecdotal things for the most part. Right. But where where you really your body's a hard time knowing the difference between you know you actually climbing and you thinking about climbing. Right. I mean, when you when you actually oh okay when you actually think about doing moves, you actually get some amount of muscular engagement mm-hmm. in doing those moves. So sometimes just thinking about things can be very similar to doing those uh-huh. things. And, so, cer- and certainly, you know, if you're if you're anticipating, in fact, this is this is something that I find that it, sometimes the anticipation 
and the anxiety of the anticipation is much greater than the anxiety in the moment. Right. Like a project that I'm working on right now, you know, I get those little butterflies. I, you know, I, I start convincing myself maybe I'm not as strong. I, I sort of feel a little weak, you know. But then you get on the climb and you're engaged in it. So it's almost sure. like the anticipation can be more powerful than in the moment of actually doing sure. it. So let's go back to the fear of falling. What, you know, if you could sort of talk a little bit about what you guys kind of came up with in terms of, of approaches to sort of dealing with that, because it's a huge thing. And, you know, I, I, I can definitely, anytime you're at the cliff, you can watch people climbing and regardless of the grade, regardless of where they're pushing themselves, you can pretty easily pick out who's scared of falling. Just watch them climb, even if they don't fall. You know right. what I mean? By the way, they you can watch their, their 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 movement change as they get above the bolt and then come back into power sort of movement as they clip above and then as their feet right. It's really uncanny, actually, mm-hmm. since I read this book and started watching. So, yeah, talk to me a little bit about what you guys started to, to sort of, you know, these, these ideas that you came up with in terms of dealing with that. So fear falling is, uh, like most fears, is a double-edged sword, right? There's a reason we have a fear of falling. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. And, yeah. And, and unlike gravity, you know, when I give talks of, on, on Vertical Mind, I say, you know, gravity's pretty darn simple. One direction. Yeah. Constant. 9.8 meters per second squared. It doesn't change. Where fear is very multidimensional. Mm-hmm. It can motivate you. Or it can hold you back. It can shut you down. And so there is a real rational fear of falling. And, you know, you don't want to fall and break a leg or get hurt, right? So the, the art is knowing when it's a rational fear and when it's an irrational fear. So I think the first thing you need to do is begin to understand when it really is a rational fear. And mm-hmm. we have some exercises in the book that say, okay, here's some things to look for that tell you that this is a dangerous fall, right? To be able to recognize mm-hmm. that. And you, you and I have been climbing for years. We can almost instinctually sense when it's a dangerous fall. Okay, once, once you've done that, um, the best way to overcome a fear of falling is to create a su- successful script around your reaction to falling. It's to log falls. Really, log falls in a very safe environment. Because, you know, and, and I still do this to this day, you know, my feet are above, above the bolt, I'm in some position, I'm going to fall, and I'm picturing some, like, gnarly swinging thing, right? Sure. And Upside just, down, and your like, leg's going to be behind the rub. You know what happens? You hit the end of the rub, you're like, right. Phew. It's like uneventful. That right? little, like, so, half-inch edge is somehow going to catch it's gonna, your Yeah, you're going like, to swing yeah, into this crazy yeah. thing, right? Oh, yeah. But it, like, hardly ever is more than a whoo, you know? Right. So I think the more you can convince yourself it's a whoo, <laughs> you know, that actually it might, it must be fun. Um, so really, really logging falls in, in your practice, mm-hmm. you know, and a gym is a great place to do this, right? A very controlled environment. Um, practice taking short falls first. You know, then longer falls, maybe falls from the side just to experience those and begin building up a repertoire of falls in your arsenal that uh, strengthen your scripts around falling. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, too, because the one one thing I see that's like tricky about this, too, is that if you do screw up and in my experience, like in and take a bad fall, it like really sets you back in terms of this. You know, I uh, a classic one here is, is we talked about this earlier is beer run. 
It's a a hard route, and long past the hard climbing, you have to do a long run out at the top. And, I don't know, it's probably 5.11, the route's 5.13. So you've done much harder climbing. So I was really nervous climbing that years ago, and so I told my buddy, I'm going to, like, I'm going to get up there, and and I'm going to jump off to get it over with. And to, and I guess what I was doing, unbeknownst to me, is trying to write this script. Right. Fortunately, <laughs> first of all, I didn't fall. I jumped off. And that there's a big difference. Because if you jump, you tend to push away from the wall, right. which creates a pendulum at the bottom of the swing. And, come, comes, and this is a good, like, 50-footer. Because there's a bunch of rope out. Mm. And then really what, high up there. Yeah, and what happened was is that I fell so far that my belayer jumped too soon because there was so much rope out, you know. And then he kind of came back down, at, you know, as I was coming to the end. So it gave me a really hard fall, and I came in and slammed my foot, and I thought I'd broken my foot, right? So then I came back down to the ground, mm-hmm. and I, I, for a week, I was hobbling around, and it, and it wasn't broken. And then the problem was is ever a- after that, like, I was so scared, like, mm-hmm. the whole damn time. It was, like, the wrong thing to do. I guess the reason I'm bringing this up is what you said earlier. It's like controlled environment. Like that was a stupid thing to do. I control environment. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we, I talked before about this think, play and send framework. I think the play part is where you do it in the safe environment. And you really have to do lots of repetitions and really build up that powerful base. However, where you really cement those memories are in the moment and those emotional moments. When you think back on, on memories, right? You tend mm-hmm. to remember the most poignant emotional moments you have. And I, I had a very bad fall. I f- t- took a trad fall like back in 1998, bounced off a ledge, fell like 60 feet. Wow. It took me 18 months to get kind of back on the horse and back climbing confidently again. Right. And I had already been climbing for, I don't know, eight or nine years, right? right. So, but all of a sudden that emotional thing really just undermine a lot of scripts that I built, right? So that's why this think, play, that send part is so important. To practice those drills you formed in an emotion-packed environment. Okay. When you can successfully do this, it really cements them. I, you know, the, do you watch American Ninja Warrior? No, I don't. Okay, I'm a huge sure. fan. I'm okay. not, not so that show. But um, the, the first woman ever to complete one of the qualifying course did so, you know, a couple of weeks ago. His name was Casey Castanazo or something like that. But so she had practiced this, obviously. You know, she had done American Ninja Warrior before. And every one of these has this thing called the warped wall. It's this 14-foot wall where you got to run Who a thing and jump up. Who was just talking about the warped wall? Oh, Jen, Jen Bisharat was. Yeah, okay. she's telling me about the warped wall. Okay, yeah, sorry. so so you got to run at this <laughs> thing, right? This is, at, this is at the end. It's always at the end of the course, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, she, clearly she knew that she was going to face this thing, right? It's on every mm-hmm. single one of these courses. So she had done drills, practiced it over and over again. I'm sure she had done successfully several times. For the first time in competition, she did that a few weeks ago, right? Uh-huh. And she's five foot tall. Right. right? So what do you think the, the probability of her doing it in competition now compared to before? Now that she's done it once, she has a much higher probability of doing it in competition sure. from now on, right? Because in the moment... She was able to do it, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, it's even more powerful. The next week, the second woman to ever complete the course and do the warped wall did it. Right. So in some ways, she kind of dropped the barrier for others. Now, that's interesting. That's really interesting. I wonder, getting away from this whole thing, I wonder if 
if this if a the script can sort of you can you can bring it from examples of other people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know the story of the four minute mile, right? Where people for years have been trying to break four minutes in the mile. Uh huh. And within a year of when Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile three or four other people broke the four-minute right. mile, right? And you know the send train, right? You know, if, if you boulder, you know the send trains, sure. right? People are grouped working, working, working at this. One person sends it, and then pretty quickly a few other people okay. send it. So, you know, there is, there is something to, um, you know, seeing something done. If right? he can it's do like, it or she can do it, yeah, I can do it. exactly. Yeah. It's almost like it lowers a barrier of belief. Sure. Right? And we talked about Ellis's ABCs, right? The B is belief, an underlying belief. Well, I think too an example is is simply even if you've if you've thrown your head against some sort of move or some or, or a climb, you know, a lot of times once I've red pointed a climb, if I've go if I go back to it for some other reason, it, it it can feel easy. Like literally easy, you know, to 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 do something like the route that that I climbed on Castleton and you know, felt so hard and so hard and so hard. And then I went back and did it with a photographer. Uh, Andy Burke came and shot it. And uh, Sam and I went up there again. And, you know, I didn't red point the pitch, but I climbed sections, long sections between bolts, and they felt totally easy, like yeah. after I'd bashed my head against it for months. Right. And so I guess this is another example. Of it's this, just so, like me- this, it's so mental, the, right? The I- brain just opened it up and said, oh, yeah, we, we, we got this now. This is our... You know, you can do these moves. You know this now. I mean, one of my favorite stories is, if in my own personal life, is I had been I had done this route in the gunks called Survival of the Fittest. It was the first thirteen A to B solo. Scott Franklin did it back in the all days. right. Yeah. And uh, I'd worked on this thing for probably two years. It was the first thirteen that I did. And um, the day I finally did it, I did it twice. And then another route a few years later, Vasodilator in Boulder Canyon. The day I did it, I did it twice. So how could something that was so hard for me, right? I can do it twice in one day. Yeah. Right. It's just totally mental. Right. Totally it, mental. Yeah. To a point. <laughs> to a point. Yeah. To I you mean, get... you got you have a certain level of fitness. Right. But right. Believe me, it wasn't my fitness. Like the my third to last ascent, it wasn't my fitness sure. that was holding me back. Sure. Sure. Well, the other another like uh, kind of phenomena that I think fits in here somewhere is that is that sort of. Uh, the the it doesn't matter send like the you know i most climbers that i know that work routes they've had that route where you know they tried their hardest and they were kind of blown out and at the end of the day they're like well i'll just do it one more working burn today to kind of get the moves down and they arrive at the chains right you know they've sort of removed this this anxiety this sort of performance anxiety or the fear of failure because they like accepted that this was, you know, doesn't matter. There's no, there's no an import to this ascent, and uh, all of a sudden they're just like climbing, climbing, and waiting to fall or waiting to be so tired that they they need to take for a minute and arrive at the chains. So I don't know if that fits well, that, in here. That was that like. was one of that was the first thing that I started experimenting with when I was when I, before Jeff and I actually talked. Mm-hmm. Is I read I read pretty much all the literature I could find, and one of the things that kept coming up over and over again was ironically enough sometimes when you focus on the result it can actually make you so anxious that you don't achieve the result okay so one thing that i started doing was if i was going to try to onsite a route 
I would not. I would totally not focus on the result. I would say I would just get onsite in the route out of my mind, and my goal would be to climb the route as well as I could climb. When I got to a rest, try to use the rest for the perfect amount of time. Make sure I'm using my my footwork well. You know, read the route well, climb rhythmically. So I would focus on non-achievement oriented goals. And I actually found I started sending things much more quickly. So sometimes thinking about the result mm-hmm. and getting too focused on that can actually, you know, keep you out of climbing in the moment, mm-hmm. which is really where you really need to be. Yeah, and it's funny too because it's like, I, I mean, without doing a clinical sort of attempt at this or, or, or like a systematic attempt is really the word I'm looking for, you know, I've tried to trick myself sometimes into thinking a certain way, but... You know, like, oh, it doesn't really matter if I do it. But there's, like, this little voice in the back, like, yes, it does. It totally matters. Don't shut up. Like, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? And I think maybe that's where, like, the drills come in. Like, in the one, in the moment, in the one time, you're not going to, like, just trick yourself. Like, have, you know... The Smeagol versus the Gollum, like yeah, you're gonna yeah, say if, no, you're if, not. You if you, suck. If you oh, used yeah, to no, thinking no, no. a certain yeah. way, right? I'm, I'm feeling yeah. really good. You're no, not, you're not. You're super tired. You're not gonna like, say this. This doesn't matter, really. I don't care if I do right. this. When in the back of your mind, like yeah. I really want to be yeah. done with this thing. So I guess yeah. I mean, it's, it's something again that, and you guys get at in vertical mind is that you know you have to you have to sort of lay this groundwork and do these these things over and over and over again to start to to kind of feel these effects of. Of sort of, I mean, playing mental games in a lot of ways, exactly. you know, because you talk about that, like the fear of falling is natural. We're, we're, we should be afraid of falling off of things mm-hmm. because it breaks bones and, right. and skulls and things like that. So a lot of ways we're, we're sort of trying to circumvent these things by creating these, the, I guess, these new ways of looking at it. But I mean, it's, it's really complicated. Well, it's, it's, it's almost like, like you're playing these games with your subconscious, even if you well, wanted yeah, to get you into are. I mean, like psychiatry. This is psychology, but you know, you are. Like, you're, you're training for human performance. That's not in a natural thing, right? right? I mean, like skiing, going 30 miles an hour on skis on snow is not something that evolutionary wise, you know, we're trained to do. No, right? We, we've got so many emotions that happen and so much brain chemistry that happens when we first do that that we scare ourselves silly. But again. You do that drills over and over and over again. You start 5 miles an hour, then 10 miles an hour, 15, 25, 30, and pretty soon you're skiing through the trees, right? Mm -hmm. So you've taken something that's not a natural thought process and created something that allows you to do something extraordinary relative to what, you know, people did 200 years ago. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I've actually thought about that a lot, like how quickly, you know, Historically, how quickly our lives have changed in the last hundred years, let's say. And, and one of those things I think about is speed. Mm-hmm. Like, there was no way for a human being to go, like, even 20 miles an hour. Maybe a speeding, super fast thoroughbred, you know, can get up into those types of things. But Or jumping off a cliff. Like, right. you know, and the fact, uh, it just, this is a complete, like, tangent, but... Like, sitting in a car and driving a car is, like, it's just so crazy that we're able to do that. Like, all these functions moving and everything's going And almost so everybody can do it. And right? everybody can everybody do it. And that's the thing, I, you know, like, <laughs> some people not so well. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's an elementary task that if you're, you know, sort of a modern person in, in, in the modern world, 
from a, at a, a certain age of 15 or 16, you're able to do this thing that's so complicated. Right. So, I mean, the brain the brain is intense, but that's a that's a total aside. But well, one thing about the evolutionary piece of that really fascinates me, and we talk a lot about this is the fear of failure has a lot to do with evolution, right? If you look 500 years ago, you know, what would happen? We, we lived in tribes, right, 500 years ago. Mm-hmm. So what would happen to me if I got separated from my tribe 500 years ago? I'd probably die. Yeah, right? you'd probably I'd probably die. die. Yeah. I, I probably wouldn't be able to hunt enough for myself. There's predators out there. There's other tribes out there who probably want my stuff. So we, for a long time, have been conditioned to be social beings, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of our fear of failure has its roots there. That it's a fear of rejection based upon that. So it, that's kind of an interesting piece of it. Well, let's talk about that. That's a good segue because we started talking about fear of falling as a, as a big component. And again, one of the major components in this is the fear of failure. So how is it different in, in, in the ways that you sort of deal with the two? I mean, we the word fear is in both of them, but... You know, one has to do with sort of the fear of this physical harm that's going to maybe happen to you, or at least we imagine the rope splitting into, you know, its strands and cutting and beaners breaking and bolts flying out of the rock (laughs) and all these things. The other one has to do with sort of rejection from a kind of a social structure, even if it's not, you don't give a crap what those people over on that other climb think, you, you give a crap what your partner thinks or what your friends think or... Whatever. So, how are those two sort of different in terms of the way that you guys prescribe dealing with them? Well, they're they're different in that uh, the things that you will do to change those scripts are different, right? There's drills for fear of falling, and we talked about those before. Mm-hmm. Um, fear of fear of failure is deep seated. I mean, it's it's cult, it's part of our culture, especially the American culture. Um, you know, I think it, we talk a lot about the the social context, and there's a lot of theories around kind of why we, how we view ourselves in the light of others and why we are concerned the way other people view us. And we, right. and we are, right? And we are social beings, and that means a lot to us. But in a the, big, it's a funny because it's such a big, like, round roundabouty thing in climbing. Like, since I started climbing, you know, do you climb only for yourself or do you climb for these other reasons? And, I mean, and I've just always fallen back on that same thing. Like, we, we are social, and even if I don't care what, that stranger thinks in the end i care what my friend thinks or what you know let me tell you why it's relevant yeah one one thing that that happened to me a long long time ago was um i was blaming a friend of mine on survival of the fittest the climbing the gunks and so i was blaming him we went there one weekend and if you go to the survival block which is where this where this is at lost city you'll see what I call the posse sitting out in front of survival. There's okay. like 10 or 20 people who can up climb, down climb, skip holes, you know, climb it in flip-flops, you know. They just have this thing wired, right? sure. survival wired. So you'll sit there and watch them up and down climb, right? I blame my friend Fred, and he, he worked on survival, and he turns to me, and at the time I was climbing like 11 plus 12 minus, you know, probably could have gotten on it, but he turns to me and says, Don, why don't you get on it? Mm-hmm. And I looked at this posse, who could up and down climb, you know, with one hand tied behind their back. Sure. And I was like, no, I was. I felt I would have been embarrassed. I was humiliated. I would. I was afraid of being humiliated. Uh huh. So I decided not to get on survival that day. 
about a year or two later, I got on survival, and within you know a couple of years, I did it. So the question is, would I have done survival quicker if I had gotten on it that day? And I think the answer is pretty clear. The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And so that social context of my humiliation in a group of people that I don't even know was very important, right? It held me back. Now, here's a question. What do you think the posse would have thought of me if I got on there and tried it? They wouldn't have cared. They would have loved it, actually. Or they probably would have loved it. Because they'd yeah. been okay. on I mean, right. every one of them had been there before, right? right? No right. one walks up to well, Not many people walked up to Survival and flash it, right? They would have been like, go, dude. Yeah. So, you know, my mindset was even, it was misleading. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just wasn't right. But nonetheless, I've got this fear of failure that's been built up in us as a society for a long time that my social mirror was telling me that these people are going to think less of me when right. they actually probably would have thought more of me. Well, I interrupted you. So you were going to start talking about um, a little bit about the differences with how you deal with this, the script. Yeah. So um, changing the fear of failure is... Um, so a couple of drills that you can do to do that is the one of the drills I have talked about before is remove the performance related the result related goal. Okay. Right. So, so the goal is not to send the route. The goal is to get on the route. Right. Which you know was the issue I was having when I first started. You know this whole journey mm-hmm. was I wouldn't get on routes because I had so much anxiety about sending or not sending. That so. If you, if you make the goal to get on, on your project, you make the goal to climb the best you can, to um, find the rest the best you can, use the rest the best you can, find the knee bars, you know, use those knee bars the best you can, make non-performance-related goals. And that kind of diffuses the fear of, fear of failure. Right. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's so hard, though, what you're talking about, because as long as I've been climbing and... You know, I I tend to I tend to hang my hat sort of ego wise on you know the bigger routes I've climbed in the world and and so when I come to rifle I know like I'm nowhere near anybody's you know top tier or anything and I have this way of sort of like falling back on like well you know in my mind I'm just like yeah you know I. I've climbed this and climbed that, so I'm not going to worry about these little sport routes. And yet, and yet, you're still here, and you're still among other people, and I still feel this little bit of twinge if I fall off of something I don't think I'm supposed to fall off of, of like other people seeing me. You know, even today, you know, I got up the the route, this eighth day route's very visible. You know, there's everybody's there, mm-hmm. which is one reason I've kind of avoided it because of this anxiety. You know. Yeah. And I got up, and, and everybody knows where the crux is. And I, you know, I got and clipped that bull, and then I started hearing people, "Come on, come on!" You know, people that don't even know me or whatever. And I like reached up, and I fell off of, I mean, just right away. Like I didn't even sort of get into the crux, and I actually like fell, and I was hanging there, and I was, and I actually apologized to the group. <laughs> funny <laughs> because i was like yeah sorry i didn't like you know you all wanted me to do it but i didn't do it i'm sitting here on the rope like yeah i'm like yeah sorry about that like if here's the I thing, just it was really weird i felt compelled to so apologize how to long all these how long how long do you think they cared for <laughs> they didn't they care. didn't no, right no, so no, that, no, i mean no. this is why it's almost yeah. like this myth that we have yeah. that other people care about what we're doing they really for the most for the most part don't yeah. and 
you know, the, the insidious thing about fear of failure is it really holds us back. Right. That, you know, a climber who has more fear of failure is not going to have the experiences as quickly as a climber who has less fear of failure. Right. And so the one who has less clear of failure will accumulate more experiences more quickly and mm-hmm. become better. Mm-hmm. And and actually will achieve the things that the person who uh, has more fear of failure would love to do. Right. So it's really this odd fantasy that we have. Yeah, and, and I mean, aside from, like, the group sort of approval, I think there's also just this, this fear. I think more in the moment, I think, when I was reading about fear of failure... I was trying to think about like when you rope up and for you know one thing that sometimes we hung up on is how fast we're going to do a route and we keep track of the tries you know and you have this you have this sort of idea of how many tries it ought to take you and when you when you sort of squeaked past that and now it's starting to get a little bit absurd in, in your mind you know so there's like this fear of failure sometimes when i leave the ground on a red point mm-hmm. that that's sort of like welling up in me like oh god i don't want to have to do this again or here it comes here comes the crux like i mean are those two things sort of related in the so sense they're of very related it's yeah. uh <clears throat> you know that it's that that performance anxiety is what you're feeling right and almost once you start climbing most of the time it goes away right um, it's very hard in difficult climbs not to be yeah. climbing in the moment because right. it's just hard, right? It's very absorbing. But it's those moments leading up to when you leave the ground. Yeah. Right. And one of the things that you well, can do... Well, sometimes it's mid-route. Like, well, if you're at a rest or something. If, if you're if you're, yeah, if you're deeply engaged... You've done that. Like, yeah, you're resting yeah. and you're... Like, I've actually kind of... I've been on rests where I, I sort of, like... like give a little glance up but then i don't want i don't even want to look up at the crux because i'm like oh it's up there i know it's up there like three more bolts it's going to get super hard here's a very important script right here's here's another one that that i think is really important to work on and i my climbing is is benefited a lot from it is is climbing in the moment and a lot of times if you're thinking too much about gosh below i really botched that sequence and i sapped a lot of energy or you're thinking well you're at the rest you know and i'm thinking about you know, that five moves up, that hold's probably slimy, and I don't know, it's going to be wet, sure. and it's kind of humid out here, and I'm going to hit the thing, and that's not helpful at all, right? And so one of the things that's really helped me is I try, and and through this come through practice, to just stay in the moment, every hold, feel every hold the way it is, mm-hmm. every move, and if you can climb in the moment, those other things don't, well, they'll take care of themselves. And if you watch professional tennis players, they're kind of masters of this, right? Because their matches can last for hours. Right. And no one ever doesn't lose a point. But they lose a point, they get right back on the line. And that last point, if it's in their head, they're, they're going to be on a snowball right. running downhill. So right. if, you, if you get a chance, watch take a match. If you don't like tennis, watch it anyways. The best tennis players in the world are masters of being in the moment. They will not be thinking about the next game. They're not thinking about the last lost shot. You know, they're just like, okay, next. And I think we can learn a lot as climbers from that because I think the most powerful thing we can do is, in the moment, be climbing as well as we can We can climb at every moment. And right. the rest is going to take care of right. itself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a lot. Like, and, and that's the interesting thing is, is when, I, when I read this book, 
you're just like, well, I do that and I do this and I'm not very good at that. Like I was, you know, all these things you just said, I'm like, yeah, I did that today. Oh no, I did that today too. Like, oh yeah, well, I did that today. Well, that's so, why this, what's so important is, you know, we wrap, we wrap things up by putting in place this framework, right? Mm -hmm. Where the first part is one of the most important parts is to think, right? you know, is that your biggest issue? If you did it today and you haven't had that issue for three years, no, it's probably not. There's right. probably some other things that you're better off defining some drills and creating those more successful scripts around mm -hmm. those things that are most holding you back. Right. Whereas if yeah, you can go overwhelmed thinking, oh, I got to learn to do dinos better, and oh, I got to learn to drop knees, and then you know you got to learn all this stuff. You can't do everything, right? You're best to focus on just those things that can benefit you most as a climber. So. Let me finish up here. Um, you know, we've people don't even have to read the book. We've given it all away. No, <laughs> just kidding. There's a, there's a lot in there actually. This is just like the the, the tip of the iceberg. But you've been climbing uh, for 21 years, right? Uh, major part of your life. I've been climbing for 24, something like that. As you looked at this and you 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 decided to write this book, like, can you? This is a hard question. But why is climbing, in your mind, so compelling to to draw us in so deeply to where, you know, we now are, you and I and all of the people that are around us tonight at the campground and everything else, like, they, their whole lives are sort of, you know, just caught up in this thing. What, what do you think it is? Well, I, I go back to uh, a lesson that I that emerged as I did my fifty athletes over fifty book. Okay. Because that that I think is very similar, right? These these folks are fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety years old, and they're still doing sports. When most, I mean, they're in the top one percent. Most most people that age have stopped doing mm -hmm. that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I think climbing is like that. We've one of the things that came out of that book is one of the unique characteristics is that those f athletes over 50, as well as climbers, have managed to still be able to tap their instinct to play. It's really that joy of movement, I think, that keeps mm -hmm. us time and time and time again coming back, because most of us aren't sponsored climbers, so it's not a paycheck, right? It's not, it's not fame and glory. It's, I think it's we enjoy the movement, and play is an instinct that all of us have when we're children, mm -hmm. and most of us lose that as we get older. Mm -hmm. And those of us who can manage to maintain that instinct to play and enjoy the experience of movement are still active when we're older. So sure. the climbing is play. I mean, right. what do we do out at the crag today? We play. Right. I mean, there's no no purpose. No one's paying us for it. There's not much reward for us besides the intrinsic joy of doing it. Sure. So I really think it's we have been able to still continue to tap into tap into that instinct to play. Right. And and I think that. You know, to build on on what you're saying, it, it's just made me think, like, you know, aside from the movement, you know, play, when little kids are playing, involves discovery. You know, it, 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 you know, I don't speak for the girls necessarily, but I'm sure it's similar is that, you know, there's thrills involved. You know, there's, if it's not literally dangerous, sometimes it pretends to be dangerous mm -hmm. you know and we want to have adventures and we want to pretend to be these adventurous people when we're little kids mm -hmm. with this imagination and what you're just talking about made me think about that of how much of climbing is about this sort of discovery thing and you know most of us like to do new routes that we haven't done before even if we then get caught up in trying to red point them but it's still the discovery of like yeah. what's up there and how's this going to feel and 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 what's going to happen 
and I think that the sad part of so many so many people's lives is it's so routine that mm-hmm. none of that ever happens to them anymore. And right. one one big part of play is the improvisational nature of it, right? sure, and the discovery nature of it, and that's. I mean, if we always climb the same ten routes to all of our lives, we probably still wouldn't be climbing. Right, we would right? stop. And yeah, for uh, sure. you know, I, I think many of us, you know, go in if we work a normal job, we go into work on Monday almost to get a rest mm-hmm. from the adventures we've had on the weekends because much of our days are probably pretty routine. Yeah, totally awesome. All right. Well, the book is Vertical Mind uh, by Don McGrath, who's sitting here with me, and Jeff Ellison. And uh, it's available from Sharp End Publishing. Um, I will go ahead and link it on the website and also link uh, Don's blog. What's the name of the blog again? MasterRockClimber.com. Which uh, I would imagine, you know, you, you throw in, in a lot of these ideas and in, in what you talk about on that. Yeah, well. talk talk about, uh, you know, a lot of blog posts about the about stuff that's in the book. Mm-hmm. There's also a bunch of training videos out sure. there on footwork and endurance and all kinds oh, of cool. stuff. So all kinds, all kinds of free stuff you can go download. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for sitting down. We, we knocked out an hour pretty quickly here. So. Thanks, Chris. It was a blast. Right on. Man, I've got certain information, all right? Certain things have come to light, and, you know, given the nature of all this new shit, you know, this could be a a, a lot more uh, 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 complex. I mean, it's not just... It might not be just such a simple, uh, you know?